0: I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Before we begin, let us pray together. God, we thank you for this time in the service where we can hear your word proclaimed. God, we're thankful for each and every Sunday that we can hear your word proclaimed. And so, God, we ask that you do what only you can do, and that stir in our hearts as you speak to us from your word. And, God, we're thankful that it is your word, and this is your church, and that you love both of those far more than we ever could. So, God, glorify yourself now in this time, we ask. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Today our sermon picks up in, in the same scene where we left off last week. Likely, they're at dinner still, where Jesus has been with Matthew, and John's disciples now appear on the scene. It's kind of like a revolving door of dinner guests. More guests just keep showing up with more questions. And John's disciples have something on their minds, you can see it. So no sooner has Jesus finished answering the, the Pharisees in regards to eating with sinners and tax collectors, and now we've got a new group. And now they're, they're questioning Jesus about another matter of righteousness. So what is it that's on the, mind, the minds of John's disciples? Well, they're concerned about the fact that they and the Pharisees are fasting and Jesus and his disciples are not. You know, here Jesus is caught between these two religious extremes. People are upset on the one hand that he's eating with sinners and tax collectors, and now you've got people who are upset the fact that he's even eating at all. Now, I mean, Matthew later talks about this in chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, and let me read that for you. It says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and I say, look at him! a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So we see no matter what they do, they're caught in these extremes of self-righteousness and these extremes are playing out and they're trying to trap Jesus and they're calling into question his righteousness. So I kind of chuckled to myself as I was preparing for this, at the fact that these disciples who are coming with this question are a Baptist's disciples. They're upset upset over someone eating. I guess it's because they're not eating, and these these people are, but that was a joke. It was just a joke, just to lighten you up a little bit, okay? But, you know, at this point, though, we need to know that John's in prison, and his disciples are just continuing his ascetic style of ministry there, his example. I mean, in this, they're going to deny physical indulgence, and there's going to be some extreme, intense self-discipline and so right now what's going on with them in the context is that the Pharisees and John's disciples likely, this is a day in which they were already fasting. And we see this in Mark chapter 2, which is a cross-reference to our text today. You can also look at Luke 5 if, if you would like to do so. But Mark lets us know that, that they're fasting. And they would have likely done this twice a week, typically from everything I read, Mondays and Thursdays. And so this is going to be a common practice for the Pharisees to fast twice a week. But the problem lies in the fact that they were going beyond what the Word of God required. And so were John's disciples. They were going beyond what the Word of God had required in terms of fasting. And and more than that, they were imposing on others this man-made requirement. Now, interestingly enough, John's disciples, despite hearing all that John had said about Jesus as as being the Messiah, being the Christ, they're throwing their lot in with the Pharisees. They are troubled by what they perceive to be an inconsistency in terms of a religious practice between them and Jesus' disciples. Now, I I recently kind of experienced something of this where my family and I were on vacation about a couple of weeks ago. And we were trying to get back from Michigan and thought, okay, it's time to stop for lunch. We'd made it halfway. So we stopped at any good Baptist stop, Chick-fil-A. Because, you know, we can trust the food and the service there. And so my kids know that Chick-fil-A also means play place. So lights were going off. And so, okay, while we're waiting on our food, We can let them jump in, stretch their legs, and play for a little bit. Well, the problem came in that on the sign of the play place, the health department where we had stopped was requiring that they had socks on. Well, we were traveling, and so we had just thrown them into sandals. All the clothes were packed up in the back, so we had no access to socks. So I I just said, well, we don't have our socks. We, We can't go in there. And we got past that point. As we're leaving, hark, they notice there are kids in there who do not possess socks on their feet. <laughs> so, launch into a big theological discussion about why we're going to follow the rules, even if no one else is, and you get that point. But, but rightfully so, the kids were questioning, well, why can they get in there without socks, and we had to put socks on? And, and so we can see where John's disciples were, are, are inquisitive about why they are fasting with this religious practice, and Jesus' disciples are not. But one thing I think we need to look at, it, it, it really concerns around this idea, is because the Pharisees were self-imposing on others something the law had not required. And and that's the kind of problem that we've encountered with groups in Scripture like this, where they're taking the law, they're taking God's Word, and they're going beyond what it says. And more than that, they're they're imposing self-righteous, man-made requirements on others. They are saying what God has not clearly said. They're trying to bind the consciences of other people where the Word of God does not. And there are some real dangers when we start going beyond what God's Word says, and, and especially what the Lord has clearly said. And we must clearly affirm and follow what God's Word clearly has said. This is a matter of ter- in terms of interpretations of Scripture and the application of Scripture. We can't go beyond what God has said. As I was reading, one commentator used the example of the commandment, thou shalt not covet. You know, that idea is rooted in the fact that God is our provider, He gives us everything that we need, and so to covet is a sign of unbelief. It's a sign of distrust in the Lord. And so what's the practical application of thou shalt not covet? Don't covet. That was free. In case you didn't get, that was free, don't covet. Now, that's great, but what the commentator was really getting at is the problem we we really get into is when we take that and we apply it personally on the personal level we, we might take it too far. For some people, they hear the commandment, do not covet, and they may not be able to watch a commercial. They may not be able to flip on the television because they are so weak in this area that they, to watch a commercial would cause them to, to go into a coveting heart. And that's fine for them. The problem is if this same person then takes that same application and says, you know what, since I can't watch commercials, neither can you. And you, to be a real Christian, cannot watch commercials. Well, we can't say that. We can't expect that because Scripture's not clear on how far that has to go. It just says, do not covet. And so the idea is that we do not covet. Now, there are safeguards in various ways that we may need to put in place to guard against that. It may be not watching commercials. But we can't apply that to everybody else. And the problem is, in the church, we can be just as guilty as the Pharisees and even John's disciples here of putting various unbiblical expectations on one another. When we go beyond what the Word says, there's some real danger there. And here are some dangers, just as as I was wrestling through the text, that, that that I saw. Number one, it can lead to an unbiblically judgmental attitude. You can begin to view others as less spiritual or even worse, you begin to view them as unbelievers because they do not line up with your standards. This puts us in the place of God, or even worse, it puts us in a place over God. And those are two places that none of us belong in. And so if we're not careful, we can have unbiblically judgmental attitudes. The second thing that it can promote is self-righteousness where we rely on what we do, what we don't do, what we say, what we don't say as signs of our status and favor with God. Now granted, as a believer, you're going to see fruit come out in our lives. But that lines up with what Scripture says, not what we say. When we do this, we're, we're really no better than the Pharisee in Luke 18 when he begins to pray. And thank God that he's not like that sinner, not like that tax collector. We're no better than that. That really reflected his heart, where where his hope, where his faith, where his righteousness truly was placed in. The third thing is it diminishes and undermines the authority of Christ in his word. When we go beyond what the word says, we are in essence saying the exact same thing that was said, that was implied in the garden, that we think we know better than God does. And this is completely false. At the end of the day, we need to realize it is not our standards, expectations, or our opinions that matter reign, no, rather it is God's word. It's his truth. At the end of the day, those are the standards for our lives in terms of belief and practice. But here's the good news. Even when you and I are tempted, like the Pharisees, to fall into this trap, there is grace. And we see this grace in Jesus' answer in, as he answers them in verse 15. Now in verses 1 through 8 and in 9 through 13, Jesus answers his opposition. But he does so with a very sharp rebuke. But here you get the idea that there's more of a gentle tone here and a gentle approach. He meets them where they are rather than just rebuking this question harshly. Jesus takes the time and uses it as a teaching moment to point these disciples toward himself. So Jesus, in his typical fashion, in verse 15, answers a question with a question. And And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So here, Jesus gives a wedding illustration. And I'll be honest with you, if you're reading it, you kind of go, they're talking about fasting and Jesus goes to a wedding. This is kind of out in left field here. What's going on here? But Jesus is painting a picture here and he's making a point by painting this picture. Jesus is describing his disciples as wedding guests. But I want you to know something that ought to stand out to you. What is the action that he says that the wedding guests will not do or should not do or is kind of odd that they would do while the bridegroom's there? Does he mention fasting? No, Jesus uses the word mourn instead of fasting. So it's interesting that John's disciples are asking about why do we fast and your people don't? And Jesus goes, well, let me tell you, why would they mourn? And they're kind of, what? Why does Jesus switch the words here? It really hits because Jesus is getting at the purpose of fasting. For the Jewish people, the idea of fasting would have been tied to times of mourning. When things were going well for a person, there really was no need or desire for them to fast. You know, fast would have been called during times of great distress, even in the midst of the nation, that maybe they needed to seek the Lord for physical healing, like you see in 2 Samuel 12, uh, David for his child. Or maybe they were seeking repentance in Jeremiah 36, Joel 1, or Jonah 3 where you see the Ninevites call for a fast. They would have changed their garments to sackcloth. They would have covered themselves in ashes to indicate while they were fasting that they were in grief and that they were in sorrow. Their fasting would have been characterized by mourning, whether mourning over sicknesses, circumstances, or sin. So let's contrast this then with this idea of fasting and mourning with that of a typical wedding. So when you think of a wedding, what do you typically think about the atmosphere being? It's joyous. It's, it's celebratory, right? You, you've got the ceremony and then the reception. Now, for me personally, I like the reception. There's food. There's music because I like to dance. I mean, if you've ever been to a wedding with me, you know I'm going to dance, even if there's not dancing there. Um, and the reality is, too, I love the laughter. They're sitting around the table. You're, you're enjoying it. The guests are happy. They're, they're glad to celebrate the happy couple. So what does that have to do with fasting? Well, wouldn't it be odd if people were sitting around at a wedding feast at the reception and they're not eating and they look miserable and they're in sackcloth and they're in ashes looking like their dog had just died three times over? I mean, imagine that. What, you're sitting at a wedding. Could you imagine sitting at a wedding and people's faces are just sunken in and they're just downcast? What would you think? Uh-oh. I've gone to the funeral instead. But that's not because weddings should be happy. You're, you know. And again, they're not going to be fasting at a wedding because they're in the presence of the bridegroom. And this is cause for celebration. On a grander level, that's what Jesus is getting at. He is the bridegroom. He's referring to himself and his presence. He is the bridegroom. The bridegroom is here. So how can his disciples be in mourning or be fasting when he's with them? There is much reason to celebrate because the bridegroom is here. Listen, Jesus is using this bridegroom illustration here, but this is found throughout the Old Testament. It's an idea that Matthew's audience, as a Jewish audience would have recognized what Jesus was saying. They would have been familiar with it. In the Old Testament, God had spoken of as the husband or the bridegroom. This is seen as Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6, and even the passage that Frank read earlier today from Hosea 2, where the Lord declares that you will call me my husband. And so we see that Jesus, when he's referring to himself as the bridegroom, he isn't just using this as an illustration. Jesus is making a bold statement that he is the bridegroom. And by saying he is the bridegroom, that means he is God. It's what Matthew chapter 1 was getting at when he said Jesus' name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. He is saying, I am the bridegroom. I am the God of the universe. Christ, God in the flesh, is with his disciples. The one that was promised long ago is here. The one to whom all the fasting and all the mourning, all the waiting was pointing towards has arrived and he is present right there with them. So rejoice and celebrate now for the bridegroom is here. Why sorrow when the Savior is here. So what does that mean for practically you and and me today? Listen, though Jesus is not physically present with us like he was then, listen, we have reason to celebrate. We can celebrate because the Messiah has already come. We can celebrate because of the life of, life of Christ. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God so that he might be the perfect sacrifice for you, for me. And when we believe in Christ, that perfect life is counted to us. He takes our sin on the cross and we are clothed in his righteousness because of the life that he lived. We celebrate that Jesus died for our sins and that God raised him from the dead so that one day we too might be raised to a new life. We celebrate the fact that Jesus ascended, and one day the bridegroom is returning to claim his bride and make all things new. We celebrate because the bridegroom has given us his Holy Spirit, and Christ is with us even until the end of the age. Matthew chapter 28 records it. That's why we can celebrate. We on this side of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension have all the reason to celebrate. So let's go back to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus gloriously teaches that the reason his disciples do not fast as John's disciples and the Pharisees is because there's much reason to celebrate because the longed-for promised Messiah is right here. The one that John points to in John chapter 3, verses 28 and 30. Let me read it for you. He's here. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Hence that language, even John is getting at the bridegroom language. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore the joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. Church, the bridegroom has come, the bridegroom is here, so celebrate. Now, Jesus is pointing to this great reality for the disciples that he is, his earthly presence is right there with them. And at the same time, in the latter part of his answer, he acknowledges there's coming a time. He's foreshadowing his departure to come. Go back to verse 15. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus warns of that day when he the bridegroom will be taken away. I mean imagine, imagine being at a wedding and the bridegroom just leaves and leaves the bride behind. It's just kind of hard for us to fathom. But listen, this is getting at his death, his burial and his ascension. When the time comes when Christ is taken away, then will his disciples fast. When what they need, when what they want goes away, they will mourn. They will mourn as they live in a fallen world and they long for the return of Christ. But I want you to see, too, that in this, in answering the question, Jesus doesn't just completely throw out fasting as inconsistent for his followers. Fasting isn't prohibited by Christ, but rather it's put in its proper place. The way in which and the time at which his disciples will fast is different than previously done. One writer differentiated this way, he said Old Testament fasting was a longing and a waiting for the king to come. It was purely a future hope. New Testament fasting, on the other hand, has both a past and present excuse me, a past and future element to it. The past element has to do with looking back to the life, the death, and resurrection of Christ, believing firmly that the King has come. Followers of Christ have tasted the new wine of his presence. We have been forgiven of our sins and we have been satisfied by our Savior. So in that sense, there's not mourning, there's rejoicing. Yet at the same time, we have been promised that there is more to come, that this this is the future element to our fasting. Although the king has come, we know that our world is still full of sickness, disease, suffering, and pain. Therefore, what we are longing for and fasting for is the day when the king will put an end to these menaces once and for all. We'll live in a new heaven and a new earth where we will dwell forever with our king. You and I live in the time where the bridegroom has been taken away and we anxiously await his return. We will likely mourn and grieve while we wait the Savior's return, but we do so with hope. Like Paul reminded the Thessalonians to grieve with hope, we as believers now mourn and fast with hope. Another writer put it this way, the Christian is not a person characterized by sorrow, sackcloth, and ashes, laments, and fasting, but a person of joy who has experienced the grace and fulfillment. Even the suffering and persecuted church is characterized by unquenchable joy. Now get me, the author is not saying that we will not lament and that we will not fast nor grieve, but rather we're going to be able to do all those things with a joy that cannot be shaken with a joy that cannot be taken from us. This is why the majority of our worship services are celebratory. Granted, listen, we need places in corporate worship where we can repent and mourn and lament. I'm not undermining that fact or arguing against that. But at the same time, we we need to see that even in the midst of a sin-filled world and and in hard times and difficult times, we can come together and celebrate the Savior, with joy. You see, this joy is rooted in what Jesus, the bridegroom, brings with him, namely the new covenant. Now, after Jesus answers his question with a question and a statement, he now moves into two interesting statements. And in these two statements, I want you to see what what Jesus is illustrating here is what the Messiah came to do. Jesus wasn't coming to revive Judaism or to add a little something extra to the old covenant. No, he came to fulfill the old covenant and usher in the new era of the new covenant. So let's look at the first illustration. In verse 16, it says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. So here we've got this picture of, a, of, of an old garment with a tear and somebody's trying to repair this garment, right? I am not a seam person at all. I cannot tailor anything, all right? I can rip clothes, but I cannot mend them together. So I have no idea. But here's the thing. Even I realized too that this would be unthinkable to do, to put a new piece of cloth on an old garment because it's unshrunk, it doesn't match, it doesn't fit with what's happening here. And so then something happens when this new thing is put on and then it's ripped off and what does it do? It makes a worse tear than the tear that was there to begin with. It devastates the old garment. So when the old and the new things are mixed, what Jesus is saying, there are undesirable consequences. The old ways of legalistic religious works must now give way to the gospel of grace and truth. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, Jesus did not come to patch up our our outward religiousness, but to make a new robe of righteousness for us. So Jesus wasn't mending the old, but he was replacing the old with the new. This garment isn't made up of a sleeve of the old, a hem of the new, a collar of the old, some buttons from the new. Rather, this is a completely new garment, and it is the righteousness of the bridegroom, adorning his people with his glory. And the second illustration gets at that same thing. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, so both are preserved. So now we move from the garment and trying to patch that up to now we're mixing new wine and old wine skins. And Jesus says this is a, a thing. He paints this picture that everybody in that culture would have gone, "You don't do that. You know better than that. That would be unthinkable for you to do that." Now listen, I had to do research. I do not know the process of making wineskins like the back of my hand. But from what I gathered, you're gonna kill an animal, you're gonna get it cleaned up, you're gonna tan it, you're gonna get it prepped for the new wine. Because when you're making the new wine, again, I don't know anything about making that process either. I had to research all this. As it begins to ferment, it's going to have some expansion that takes place because of all the gas. The new wineskins have the ability to deal with the the expanding and stretching. The old wine skins would not. They've been tattered, they've been worn, they've shrunk, They, they would not be able to handle the fermenting process of the new wine. It would put too much strain on them. And so what do we see? What Jesus says here, they would burst, the wine would be spilled, and the skins are destroyed. Nothing's left, nothing's saved. I experienced something of this the other day in the youth room. We have breakfast for the youth, and lately not all the milk has been consumed, and apparently this gallon of milk had not been consumed for a long time and had gotten to the back of the fridge. And so I noticed that the gallon was a little swollen. You know, a little indention in the middle? Well, it was popped out. Now listen, I have learned from bad experiences of not venting things. Uh, Gas can didn't vent it one time, tried to pour the gas and right in the eye. I was not going to have that happen again. So I began slowly venting the milk, or so I thought. And as I took that final turn, boom, I mean, that milk went everywhere. We had neighbors behind here calling saying, we've got milk in our trees. What happened? Um, and it was so bad, it was disgusting, it was disastrous. There was not a dry place in that youth kitchen of clabbered milk. Yes, pray for me, I'm still traumatized. But, but I say that, but you see that the swelling and the fermenting process, it, it caused, on the milk, imagine with the wineskins, it would have caused much more destruction. But in a much more important way, Jesus is teaching that the new wine must not be mixed with old wineskins. This is not some agricultural lesson from here because when the new wine is put into new wineskins, both the new and wine and the new wineskins are preserved when they're kept together. Again, not an agricultural lesson. What Jesus is getting at is the new wine. Well, what is this new wine? It's the new covenant. It's the same thing that we celebrated when we took the Lord's Supper last week as we took the bread as the body of Christ and we took the juice to represent his blood, sign of the new covenant. This is the covenant in in which the covenant where Christ has provided full atonement for God's people through his blood. It is the covenant in which righteousness is fulfilled through Christ and righteousness is applied by Christ. You see, Jesus has brought the new covenant in which the path of righteousness, which John's disciples are questioning, is redefined. It isn't based on a system of works and adherence to rituals and sacrifices, which nobody could perfectly keep anyway. No, rather, it is based on the righteousness of Christ, his teachings, what he has done, what he has said, because he has come and he has fulfilled the old covenant. So we're not to mix the two. Now listen, Jesus is not dismissing the old covenant as irrelevant, but rather what he's rebuking is the ways in which the old covenant is being misused or abused. And he's, and he's rebuking the, the thinking that he is just an addition to the old way, the old covenant. Jesus is the complete fulfillment of the old covenant. And trying to mix these old Jewish practices with Christianity would be detrimental. It will not work, and it is not necessary because Christ and his work are sufficient. When we try to add, and we're guilty of this too, when we try to add to the new covenant, we fall into this trap of Jesus and. And what I mean is that we start adding other requirements to salvation like, you must believe in Jesus and wear a suit and tie every Sunday. Or you must believe in Jesus and fill in the blank. You've either heard something similar to that or you've said something similar to that. And so we start heaping up these requirements of, well, if they're truly righteous, then they're going to, Jesus, and it's only in the righteousness of Christ that we stand. That doesn't mean we won't see fruit, it's not righteousness that we've earned. Or can earn, it's righteousness that has been freely given to us through Christ. And it's righteousness that will come out in our works. We have to get the order right. One person really put this in a succinct way Jesus plus something equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We do not need to add to Christ, and Christ is not added to anything. He is sufficient in and of himself. We must trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation and for our righteousness, for he is our bridegroom and he is our Messiah and Savior. So to bring this home and recap, Jesus, the bridegroom, has come and he's brought the new covenant. The new covenant is a better covenant of which the author of Hebrew writes in chapter 8. It's better than the old because Jesus himself, the author of that covenant, is greater. He's the author of that covenant. He's the fulfiller of that covenant. And so we need to be careful. We need to be on guard of ways that we seek to add to the new covenant and try to rely on other things other than Christ. And so as we, as we think about this today, we need to know the Messiah has come. And so listen, what does that mean for us? Yes, there'll be times where we will fast with anticipation. We're going to fast with mourning. But we're going to do so with joy as we live in a fallen world. Because listen, we know, because God's word is said, that one day we are going to feast to celebrate the return of the bridegroom and the final consummation of God And God's perfect plan to reconcile us back to him and make all things new. So while we wait, we do so with hope and celebration of the day to come. Jesus was saying, my disciples do not fast and mourn because the bridegroom is with them. You and I may fast and mourn as we wait for his return. Knowing that one day our fasting will turn into feasting. At the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's read of that picture together. I want you to stand with me, please. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to begin in verse 4. But, church, I want you to see, as we looked at the bridegroom, what is to come. We can have celebration and hope today because of what is to come. Revelation chapter 19. Verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, and for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Let's pray.